and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. What a wonderful time of worship we've had today, and as you guys have sung and prayed and been a part of that. Uh, we had our D3 conference a couple of weeks ago, then our shepherding elder Wade preached for us, and um, then... Pastor Jeff preached last week for us, so I'm excited to be back at it after a couple of weeks off. I'm rested. I'm ready to, uh, I'm ready to go for it. Let's continue our worship as we open our Bibles. Let's go to John chapter six. Get something to write with. Let's dive back into the text today. We've been in chapter six now for a while. And we're going to sl- uh, slow down even a little bit more just because there's so much here uh, in this verse. We're going slow because there's just so much that Jesus is teaching us here. And I don't want us to miss even a little tiny bit of it. Uh, so let's take just a couple of minutes to review. We've got some big stuff in our uh, in our path today. I mean life-changing stuff. If you'll hear from the Holy Spirit. In fact, some of the stuff that Jesus is going to be teaching us today will change the way we live life if we believe it, if we incorporate it into our lives. What I'm saying is that some of this stuff, well, it's going to set you free from some of your biggest worries. I mean that. I mean that. I know this is a big claim, but just stay with me. What we've seen so far is that all this chapter has been pointing to who Jesus is as the Son of God and then what that means. It's like all the first parts of chapter 6 kind of funneled down into this intense part that we're hanging out in. This chapter began with the feeding of this massive crowd from just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And then what we we heard about Jesus walking on the water and then getting in the boat uh, and then taking the, the uh, disciples to the other side. Incredible stuff. All of chapter 6 up to this point has been pointing to this section of scripture that we've been camped on out, uh, camped here for the last few weeks. And we'll be here for another few weeks. This big crowd has followed Jesus to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. They want him to prove he is the Messiah, giving them more bread, by giving them more bread. And they mean like every day, give us bread. And they want him to be their king. They want him to throw the Romans out of their land. They are more interested in what Jesus can provide for them personally than who he is in a relationship with him as the Messiah. Now that's important to understand because at the end of chapter 6, Jesus is going to be separating true believers from false believers. He's going to separate those who actually believe in him as the Christ from those who just want stuff from him. Now, in these conversations between Jesus and this giant crowd, we see Jesus making some, well, some incredible claims. First, the claim to be the bread of life. Now, remember, we found this uh, to be the first of seven I am statements where Jesus will claim to be God by calling himself the phrase, I am. That phrase, I am, is actually what He's claiming his name to be. That name, I am, is the covenant name God had given to Moses. He said, have the people call me this. The apostle John wants us to see that Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. Or we could say 
God the Son. Literally claiming to be God the Father sent Jesus the Son to take on human flesh as the second Adam who would succeed the first Adam where he had failed. Now we'll get to that more. So here's God the Son standing in front of this giant crowd. He's done this amazing miracle, claimed to be the Son of God. And then we saw in verse 36, we heard Jesus tell the crowd, They say, he says, you've seen me, you've seen the works that I've done, and you've heard my claim. And yet, you do not believe. And it's at that point in the first half of verse 37 when Jesus says this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now we've looked at this last time in depth, but let's remember for just a moment what we learned here because it's been a couple of weeks. It's been a minute. We said that what this claim Jesus is revealing here in the first half of verse 37 is the greatest contract of all time or what theologians call the covenant of redemption. Jesus says the contract occurs when God the Father gives Jesus, God the Son, some of those held in God's hands awaiting judgment for their sin. God the Father unconditionally chooses some of those in God's hands to give to Jesus as this wonderful act of grace, mercy, and love. And it's not just an act of love towards us. It's really more of a love gift to the Son from the Father. We are the bride of Christ, is what we call it. The church, the called out ones, the elect. You can think of it this way. We are loved by God the Father because we, I'm talking believers, are in Jesus Christ, the Son. The entire act of redemption, talking about our salvation, flows from the love of the Father to the the Son. Think of it this way. Big note, but I want you to write this down. This is important. We are loved in the Beloved. Meaning, because we are in Christ Jesus, the beloved, we are loved by the Father with the same love that he has for Christ Jesus. Now, I know that's a lot. Hang with me. We are loved in the beloved. Meaning, because we are in Christ Jesus. Talking about the saved. The beloved is Christ Jesus. We are loved by the Father with the same love that he has for Christ Jesus. That's a powerful thought. That we are loved with the exact same love God the Father has for Christ. Because we are in Christ. Because it's these people that the Father gives to the Son who will worship Jesus for all eternity. A people for himself. That's what Christians are. A people given to Jesus that he has redeemed by his blood. We could call that the bride price. If we're the bride of Christ. He purchased our freedom. And what we really dove into last time. Was that the people that God chose 
They were all guilty. They were all facing hell. None of them wanting God. None of them seeking God. But God chooses some of those people facing judgment. The biblical way to say that is that God the Father elects those that he was giving to the Son unconditionally. Unconditionally. In other words, God doesn't require work from us in the choosing. God doesn't choose folks because of any foreseen quality in them or work they will do, but solely according to the kind intention of his will. We're just told by Jesus that God the Father chooses some of those in his hand awaiting judgment to give to Jesus. What Jesus is talking about here is God is choosing some of those facing judgment for their sins to be called to life through the Son, Jesus, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, we always want to remind ourselves that God the Father is under no obligation to save anyone. In fact, let's be honest, God would be perfectly justified if he saved no one. The real wonder is why he chooses to save anyone at all. God's grace cannot be owed to someone or demanded. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace, would it? Now, remember what we said last time. These are secondary issues, but very important issues, but secondary issues. Now, think about the doctrines of grace for just a moment. We call these the dogs, the short way to say it. We call them the dogs because they're the doctrines of grace that Jesus has been teaching us here in this chapter. Doctrines of grace, remember those five major headings that stand together as one comprehensive statement to the saving purposes of God. And that is what Jesus begins to show us in chapter six. So look at this. Let's review for a second. The five major headings of the doctrines of grace. Radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible call, preserving grace. I know we've hit these, but I want you to write them down again. Because Jesus is going to unpack these things for us in the rest of the book. Radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible call, preserving grace. Preserving grace The very last one is what Jesus is talking about here in the second half of verse 37. That God preserves us until our salvation is finally realized in heaven when we are made alive in Christ Jesus. In weeks past, we've looked at our our total inability, our radical depravity, or of us being dead to the saving work of God on our own our inability because of our sin to come to God on our own can be summed up in saying that apart from God's grace given to us, a man will not admit his even his need of a savior and will not come to Jesus Christ and have that need met. You just won't do it on your own. It's not your nature. Or as the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, that before we are born again, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are simply unable to respond because God, to respond to God because we are dead to him. Dead means dead, unable to respond, a spiritual corpse. 
So how is anyone then saved at all if we can't turn to Jesus on our own and believe? Because several of you are saved in this room, me too. How did we get saved? I mean, if we don't have the ability to turn to Jesus spiritually, since we are spiritually dead, how is anyone saved at all? We looked at this before, but it's important to remember it again. Write this down. No one wills to come except those, the Holy Spirit, whom the Holy Spirit has made alive in Christ Jesus. No one wills, in other words, on their own, to come except those whom the Holy Spirit has made alive in Christ Jesus. We are, as Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, born again. Born from above. And that is what we studied and what Jesus has said about the irresistible call of God um, to those that the Father chooses. He makes us alive through the Spirit. He calls us to new life in Christ Jesus. We are born again with a new heart and, and that does the will of God to come to Christ. This is a miracle of salvation because salvation is something that only God can do, right? Only God can do that. Both Ken and Wade at our D3 conference labored to convince us salvation is something only God can do, didn't they? But it's right here in the second half of verse 37 of John 6 that we're going to see one Well, one of the most important and, and should I say, most comforting things, at least to me, about being made alive in Christ Jesus. And that's the second half. Watch this. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. If the first half is the irresistible call of God, or as some theologians call it, the efficacious, as in effective call of God, Meaning that when God does it, it works. He calls it, you come to life. Not because of us making it work, but that God is making it work. Do you see the difference? You could say it is guaranteed by the unchanging promises of a sovereign God. God's plan, in fact, his grace will not be frustrated. I mean, he is God after all, right? Or another way to say it is that God's perfect plan of salvation will occur for those he has called to life. It will happen. Now remember what we call the golden chain of salvation. Do you remember that? We looked at this last year. Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 8. Look at the order of our salvation. Paul says it this way, starting in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. He is Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice in verse 30, all the verbs past tense. Now, this is interesting, meaning that God declared them in the past that they will come true in the future, that believer's glorification 
in eternity future, when we get to heaven, what we're seeing here is Jesus is teaching this huge comfort to us. When Jesus says this, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here, here's number five of those doctrines of grace that Jesus is talking about. You ready for it? Here's what it means. Preserving grace is the doctrine of eternal security of faith for those that have been born again and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is a big soft pillow to rest your head on at night. Preserving grace is the doctrine of eternal security of faith for those that have been born again and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, a couple of things here right off the bat about this. Like all the doctrines of grace, it's easy to get the wrong meaning or go in the wrong direction on this stuff. So listen close. First, realize that this doctrine may take a bit for this to sink in. What I don't mean is that it will take a while for you to understand it. It's not a hard doctrine to comprehend. It's not hard to understand this. But what is hard to fathom and takes a while to sink in is the impact that this doctrine of Jesus has on the life of believers. Because if this is true, and I believe wholeheartedly that it is, then it changes the way we live our lives here in the right now of our everyday. What we mean is that we will no longer be looking over our shoulder, wondering if, God, do you still love me? Wondering if I somehow ticked God off or I just sinned a little too much and lost my salvation. That's a huge comfort. We don't have to worry about that. Second warning here. There are some seriously false teachings of this doctrine that we'll want to make sure that we recognize so we don't fall into those wrong ways of thinking about this. For instance, false teachers have said, if God covers all of our sin with his grace and we can't lose our sin, then why not just sin as much as possible and have this get out of jail free card, right? By the way, I would question if someone were truly a believer in Christ Jesus if they held to that doctrine. The Apostle Paul addresses this question, though, a couple of times in chapter 6. He says in verse 1, though, he says of Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is... We can't. We can't still live in it. Now, we might fall to sin here and there and repent as the Holy Spirit points it out in our lives. But our focus should be on how we follow Christ. It seems like our focus should be trying not to sin, doesn't it? But the real way the real key is to build our relationship with Jesus. Oh, please hear me on this. This is at the center of most of your problems. Is that you don't strive to build the relationship with Jesus and rid yourself of sin. We can say that we keep our eyes on Jesus to know him more. This is so important. 
we don't live in sin, we stay repentant as believers. Now this doctrine of the security of the believer can really mess people up if you don't get it. So hang on and let's walk through it carefully what Jesus is claiming. Let's understand this, God's preserving grace at the most basic level. Cool? All right, because this is what makes God's grace all the more, well, amazing. That our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. We can't lose it because we're not the ones that won it. We didn't purchase it, he did. It's so amazing that God not only calls us to life through his son Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, God himself then walks with us in the Spirit through the rest of our life. Christians are in fellowship with God the Father every day as his adopted children in Christ Jesus the Son through the Holy Spirit working with our spirit. We have been made alive in him. It's totally a Trinitarian deal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit that we walk with. The Holy Spirit is slowly and constantly kind of helping us grow into this image of Christ Jesus. Using our ups in life and certainly the downs in our life, the challenging parts to grow us. Conforming us into the image of Jesus. So we look like Jesus in how we live. Now, what's amazing about this is that despite all my sin, all my mess-ups I have every day, I'm talking about after I've been saved and repented. I'm talking about like even today. God still keeps me safe and secure in his hands. Even though I wrestle with temptation and sin, he keeps me safe in his salvation. What's even more amazing is that even in our regenerated state when we have truly been born again by God's spirit we are this is going to blow your mind Martin Luther observed this simultaneously justified and sinners it's going to blow your mind but write this down believers in Christ Jesus are simultaneously justified in other words made right with God and sinners You go, Paul, how could that be true? It's true because God's word says it. Believers in Christ Jesus are simultaneously justified and sinners. In other words, we still sin. We try not to, but we still do. What we're saying is that although we have been declared righteous by God through the death of Jesus Christ, we still wrestle with temptation, don't we? And sometimes we fall to it and we sin. But praise God, Jesus' blood covers our sin. Amen? The penalty for our sin has been paid for by Jesus on the cross of Calvary if we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we've been born again. That is what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans 7. What this truth means is that we, talking as believers in Jesus, are in a constant state of confession of our sin to God. Are you with me? Constantly. 
every day repenting of any sin that we might commit both consciously and unconsciously. Not to somehow get re-saved each time or saved again. But because we are saved, we are loved by Jesus. Every day we repent because we love Jesus and he loves us. As we know, the Holy Spirit of God is living and active inside each believer. One of the key roles of the Holy Spirit, what they do, what he does in the lives of a believer is to convict us of sin. In other words, to point it out, say, hey, that's sin. Again, not to resave us, but because we are saved. Do you see the difference? We, we want to repent of our sins so that we can be in the right relationship with Jesus. We don't lose our salvation when we sin as a Christian. Our sin, our sin past, present, future has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. Can I get an amen? We're still God's children even though we sin. But what it does in our unrepentedness of our sin for a believer is sin hinders us from going to God. Not from his end, but from our end, we feel guilty. With unrepented sin in our life, we not, might not pray like we should. We might not read his word like we should. Or Or we might even wallow in our unrepentance and keep moving away. Since I did this, then I might as well do this and do this sin. And it leads us into more serious sins. That's why we need to keep a short list of sins. Meaning at at the moment when the Holy Spirit convicts us of a particular sin, we confess it specifically, we name it, we own it, we repent of it. It's like unrepented sin hinders our spiritual growth. By the way, let me, let me just say there are some of you hearing my voice right now that you believe you're a Christian, but you have unrepentant sin. Maybe you've had it for years and you wonder why you are miserable in life right now. You have this guilt for some sin And you feel like you're hiding it from God by hiding it from us, your friends, your brothers and sisters. And don't think for some moment that your sin is somehow hidden from God just because your wife or husband hasn't caught you at it. Or that you fool us by carrying a big Bible here and smiling a lot, but you're living in sin. Listen, God has forgiven you because of Jesus' death. Repent. Turn back to God. Turn away from your sin. There's tremendous freedom in repenting of your sin and turning back to God with your whole heart. I promise. It's like a load being taken off your shoulders. And and by refusing to confess and repent of your sins, in a sense, we are willing to return into the bondage of sin that we were under before Christ Jesus came to set us free. It's like if we were in a jail cell, think of a musty old dungeon jail cell, and Jesus comes to set us free. For a Christian continuing to sin, it's like, I'm going to go down to the basement, just sit in that jail cell and close the door and play like it's locked. No, Jesus has set you free from sin. Walk in the repentance. 
Repentance is a gift of God that God gives to those. He is given to Jesus just like faith. Did you hear me? Repentance is a gift that God gives to those that he has given to Jesus just like he does with our faith. He gives us the joy of repentance. The Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. John says, if we say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, not God or anyone else. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now remember, the apostle John is addressing believers here. Don't miss what his point is. It's not that we lose our salvation each and every time we sin, but rather our relationship with God is damaged. So John is saying, look, if we confess our sins, realize that God is faithful and just to continue keeping forgiving our sins. The price of the blood has been paid for our freedom. But, uh, but that we need to repent of our sin. Why? Because sin damages our relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, if you can understand this, it's a giant step in the right direction of growing you in the faith. To repent of our sin as soon as we realize we've sinned. So how do we actually, how do we actually repent? If repentance is a change of mind leading to a change of action in how we live. We turn our back on sin and on our desires that we want to do that are sinful and we follow God instead. Do you see the difference? Now get this. The world and even some jacked up progressive liberal churches have this seriously false doctrine. And you know it's false doctrine. Well, one, it's right out of the pit of hell, but it agrees with the world. Watch out for it. Watch out for this false doctrine. That doctrine says, if you have a desire for something, the Bible says is a sin well, then it actually couldn't be a sin. This is false doctrine. Because God would never give you a desire for something that he didn't want you to have a desire for. They would say, God doesn't mess up, so the desires he gives us are the ones we should follow. Now, you've got to hear me. You've got to hear me. To tell someone to sin and disobey what the Bible clearly teaches is and says is a sin that leads to death and hell that is literally what it means to hate someone it's like telling someone hey that poison it's not really poison at all drink up it's not really poison you'll love it that's hate What's interesting is that the evil has a way of trying to turn the tables on right and wrong stuff. We call wrong stuff right and right stuff wrong, don't we? Or the world does. And what Jesus gives us as life, this cleansing of sin and the chance to repent and get right and turn to God. The progressive liberal churches in the world and the media now says, 
Oh, that's hate. That, that's hate. They say it's hate to tell someone the way to life. Someone said to me, that's, that's not fair. Like the world shouldn't do that. That's not fair. But we shouldn't expect the world to play fair, should we? So we point to Scripture to find out what is right, what is wrong, not society, not the news. We confess our sins to God. I do that daily. When we're saved, we are declared righteous by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But there's still this, there's still this old part of me that wants to sin. I call it the zombie me. You know, it's the, the me that wants sin. It, it's, the Christian, it, it's the Christian life, isn't it? A constant battle to repent and turn back to Jesus. This battle between our flesh, the zombie old version of us that want to sin. They, we, we, want, we want what we want and we want it now. That battle with the Spirit pointing it out. That's evidence, by the way. That battle is evidence that we are saved. Unsaved people don't battle with the flesh like that. They are in bondage to it. What's so amazing about what Jesus is teaching here is that despite my mess-ups, despite my sin, God still keeps me safe and secure in his hands in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ, you too. You want to hear something incredibly encouraging? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says right after that golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Listen to what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're saved, say amen. Praise God for this truth. Nothing can separate us from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now hear me out. Some Christians, maybe some of you right now, have had hidden sin for quite some time. Maybe even years. You love Jesus, but the sin has got you in its grip. Grip you've kept that sin hidden away from the Christians around you. Man, I've been there. I've been in those dark places. Make the decision today to let it go. If you're saved, 
You are secure in Christ. But you're living like you're an enemy of God. By the way, that little phrase, in Christ, remember that? It's incredibly important. It is the Apostle Paul's favorite way of referring to believers that are in Christ. Look at this point we examined earlier. We are loved in the beloved. That's Jesus. Meaning because we are in Christ, Jesus, the beloved, we are loved by the Father with the same love that he has for Christ Jesus. I'm going to cry all this. Please grab hold of this. We are loved with the same love that he has for his very son. Why? Because we've been made sons and daughters through the death of Christ. If we are saved, if you believe Jesus is the son of God and you place your faith in him, you have been given eternal life. Not temporary life. Eternal life. But if you're living in sin, you're keeping yourself locked in chains of sin that Jesus has set you free from. Why go back to that? Turn away from your sin. Grow into all that God wants you to be. Earlier I said that this, this doctrine's not hard to understand. It's not. What is difficult to comprehend is the depth of the love of God he has for his people. We are loved in the beloved, meaning because we are in Christ Jesus, the beloved, we are loved by the Father with the exact same love that he has for Jesus. What I mean is that all my life, I was fed this steady diet of teaching that says, do good things, stay repentant, then God will keep you saved if you do enough. If your experience was like mine, not everything you were taught was wrong. It was just not very deep in the scripture. It didn't hold to the full counsel of God, especially in this area of assurance of salvation and eternal security which can easily be brushed over with simple phrases like, once saved, always saved. Yeah, but why? But once I began to understand that my salvation rested on God's ability, not mine, it was like a light, boom, went on. No, 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 it was more like a weight lifted off my shoulders. To realize that God loved me and chose me because he loved me, not because I chose him. And that love extended all the way through eternity future. That he wouldn't drop me because I screwed up. I like to remind you often that for believers, we live in the in-between. You remember that? The right now and the future kingdom. We have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus and adopted as the children of God. But we're not home yet. One day, when we die, or when Jesus comes and takes his people home to heaven, we will finally be made complete in Christ Jesus. Sin and death will be no more. 
What we mean is that not only will I not sin anymore, even the temptation to sin will be gone. In fact, even the possibility of sin will be gone. The wrestling with my old sinful nature, the zombie version of me, will be gone. We will live with Jesus for all eternity, growing more and more to be like Jesus Christ in fellowship with God. But until that day, we live in the in-between the already and the not yet. Like Martin Luther said, we are simultaneously both justified and sinners. And make no mistake, it's, it's a difficult battle all of us face every day. He keeps us saved and we are fighting the sin in our lives because the Spirit dwells in us and helps us in that battle, even when we want to quit. But both of those things are true. Let's pray together. If you would just enter a time of prayer with me and with God, not just me praying for you, but you praying into a time of repentance. What sin are you holding on to in secret that no one knows? You said, I'll just keep this one little thing. It's not that big. What is it? If you were in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit will point that out. Listen. You probably already know. So why not let that sin go? Repent of it. Remember the definition of repentance. A change of mind leading to a change of action. Make the decision now. Before God. Confess the sin to God. Say, God, here it is. Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it porn use? Is it complaining about everything? Is it some other sexual sin? Is it worry? Does worry have your heart gripped right now? Folks, that's one that I have to repent of daily. What is it? If you would, just repent of that sin as I pray right now. God, we come before you as your people, but as individuals. And we say, here's our sin. I'm sorry, God. I want to do right. Help me to kill my sin. Help me to flee from temptation. God, I trust you with the results. In just a moment here, our band's going to lead us in a prayer. I mean, lead us in a time of worship. But after that, at the end of our service, our elders will be down front here, shepherding elders, and they're ready to pray with you. Ladies, if you want to pray with a lady, uh, some of the elders' wives will be up here. You can pray with them. If you'd like to confess a sin today to them, they'll keep that confidential. The important thing is you confess it to God. But if you want a brother or sister in Christ that you can just say, Here, I want to turn from this sin. 
They'll walk with you through that and pray for you. Any other prayer request too that you have? If you have healing that you, you need, if you've got a situation at work, you can go ahead and have them pray for that and they'll pray for those things for you and agree with you in prayer. Well, God, we come before you. You have made us new. We thank you for the forgiveness that you give us through Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.